0: It's good to have you all back here as we continue to work our way through this amazing book. In the first couple weeks, we have done a lot of overview and some of the different groundwork on how we're going to be traveling through the Book of Revelation, um, talking about the different perspectives as to the uh, interpretation of the book, which I just laid out in those and uh, that this commentary helps us understand. And then I've talked about the different millennial positions. Then last week, I spent more time trying to explain the direction that I will be going as we work through this book, particularly from a preterist position. And then this this week, we want to try to get further into chapter one and even complete chapter one uh, and just kind of work our way through. Um, We left off last week around verse five and six. So we'll pick it up there and continue to work through and highlight some of the Um, elements that John brings out still with the introduction. There's still some points within these first few verses that we want to look at and help us kind of uh, set our coordinates for the rest of the book. Uh, But before we dive in, are there any questions maybe that you've had over this last week as you've thought through and wanted to ask concerning the things we've discussed the last couple weeks? Any points of clarification that I can make for you? Okay, so, and as always, feel free to raise your hand in the, in the middle. and happy to try to answer questions and bring clarity to some of the ambiguities that might exist. So it's so important to remember, and as chapter one will continue to put before us, what Revelation is all about, right? Revelation is about many things, but at its core, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ for who he is. And it's a book that is about dominion. It is about the dominion of Jesus. It's not a book that is about the, uh, how evil the Antichrist is or how powerful the devil is. It is, as again, as the very first verse says, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, that is, the anointed one, the Messiah, the king. This book is about him, and it's about his lordship over all things. It's about our salvation in this Christ. It is about the new covenant that comes in Christ. It tells us about the victory of Jesus over all things, that he is the archon, that is the ruler, the judge, the chief of all the kings of the earth. Revelation is about how God has made the kingdoms of this world into the kingdoms of his son and of his Christ. It tells us how Christ and his people will rule and reign forever. Revelation is the most optimistic book in the Bible. It really is. When we read through this book and we see what it's saying about Jesus and about the people of God, it is a book, a book of victory, a book that proclaims the lordship, dominion, and rule of Christ in time and in space. It is an incredibly hopeful book, not only for that first century who is being persecuted, but it's an incredibly hopeful book for us As well. Again, it is the most victorious and optimistic book in the Bible. Now, this might seem kind of strange for us to think about that, particularly when we look around our world and we think it doesn't seem like Jesus is winning, (laughs) right? It doesn't seem like the gospel is victorious when we see what's going on in our country, when we see what's going on around the world. And for a lot of us, we'll look at even just our country and say, how is it that the gospel is victorious? How is it that Jesus rules and reigns when we look around and we see that we live in a post-Christian country? And I think what we could do if we were to step back a little bit more and look at history as a whole, I think a more accurate statement is not that we live in a post-Christian country, but that we live in a pre-Christian country. The gospel has not gotten root the way it will one day, right? The gospel has not advanced as much as it will in the future. And this is what Revelation is constantly trying to tell us, is that the gospel is going forth with efficacy. With, it's effective. It goes forth with power. So in more than one way, the book of Revelation is about the rule and reign, the victory of Christ. And throughout this book, we'll see that Jesus' lordship is never questioned It's never brought into doubt. His rule, his reign is not a fragile rule and reign. It is about his dominion. And, uh, excuse me, in uh, Revelation, what book are we talking about? Genesis, Exodus, or Revelation? (laughs) Revelation chapter one, we see this vision of Jesus put forward in this cosmic sort of language, showing that he is indeed the ruler, the archon. Of all the kings of the earth, he, and the description that we see given to Christ, the way he is described throughout this chapter, carries us through all the way to the end, right? We see Jesus increasing in glory, not really increasing, but our, our view of him increases in glory throughout this entire book. Okay, So this this first section, as we move through uh, chapter 1, I want us to think about it as John um, kind of presenting Jesus as the ruler, as the one who reigns, the coronation of Christ. So we'll start here in verses 5 and 6. And we looked at these a little bit last week. We ended, I think, on this same slide. But it starts like this. It says, And from Jesus Christ... The faithful witness. That word is that word martyr, right? He is the one who judges the world. He is the witness of all that is good, true, and beautiful. He is the perfect standard of justice. He is the faithful witness against whom all things are to be measured. Nobody is getting away with anything in this world at any point in time because of who Christ is. He is the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead that is he is the firstborn of the new creation the resurrection the first fruits he is the one that begins this new creation that we are brought into by faith in Christ and then we have this great hope of the resurrection that we will like him be born of the dead and the new heavens and the new earth with the resurrection and the ruler of the kings of the earth again this is the archon a Chief, ruler, the one who has all authority, dominion of kings on earth. It's not working. Hmm. Let's try this again. Thanks, you. Wonderful. I will try to answer, though I'm not very good at two things at once. (laughs) But go ahead. (laughs) Oh, that's not helpful. (laughs) I don't know why this screen hearing is not working. There we go. Okay, now we're all thoroughly embarrassed. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, just. uh, Yes, though it's 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 understood differently, right? So, I mean, and and to a certain degree, it depends on how you would describe the rapture; they would be viewed um, differently as well. So, the the historicist view believes that the tribulation is this indefinite period from the moment of of Christ, from the time of Christ, all the way till his second coming. We live in this, um, or all the way to the rapture, I should say. We live in this moment of tribulation that is described as kind of a universal way. Um, The idealist view, this is one that sees the, well, actually, let me go back to the historicist. And they also see the rapture as um, this event that, um, will come after the tribulation is done. so it would be like a post tribulational thing, but Jesus will come back and set up his earthly kingdom, okay Then the dispensational view, which is similar to to this one, would put the tribulation right before uh, the the millennial reign when Christ comes back to rule and reign on earth, and right after the rapture. So right now we're living in this in this moment of the church age, and the next event and the eschatological calendar would be the rapture, followed by a seven-year tribulation, followed by a thousand-year millennial reign on earth. The idealist view would see that the tribulation um, is uh, this, this... It's an aspect that it, it's kind of always happening, um, but it's, it's spiritualized. So tribulation just looks different in different times. It's more of a spiritual piece. And then the, the preterist piece or view would say that the tribulation, as as described in Revelation and Matthew twenty four, took place back right before the destruction of the temple in A D seventy. That's what's being described in those verses. Yeah, that's that's correct. That is that is my goal, is to convince you of that one. So it depends on how, only the dispensational view has has the rapture as we commonly understand the rapture, as going up into the sky and and being with Jesus during the tribulation, right? So that's just the dispensational view. The rest, see the verses in Thessalonians of us being caught up to Christ in the air, but then it's this idea of the way that, a kingdom goes out and greets a king and they come back with him in victory so so it's a different it's we every, all of them look at these verses in Thessalonians and other places to say this is this is real but how do we theologically understand it and where do we place it in kind of the eschatological calendar is so, different so, then, so really one only has a rapture where you go into yeah heavens, the other ones okay yeah that's right yep. yeah I good <laughs> Good, good. Good question. Kylie. That's a good question. You know, it's interesting. So when we look at the kind of the creeds and confessions of the church, in which we all read together, was the Nicene Creed, um, eschatology, which is the study of kind of end times, is one that has never been settled universally within the church. Like we understand who Christ is, we understand who the Trinity is, we understand what the Word of God is, and we can say if you depart from this, then we have problems. When it comes to the study of end times, the the church has never come to a consensus on this to the point where. We would say, if you disagree, then you're probably outside of the church or a heretic, like we would with the Trinity or who Christ is. So does that mean we'll never settle on it? No, we very well could. And maybe it will be in 10,000 years from now. Maybe. Um, But right now, there's absolutely freedom to look at the scriptures and try to go where it takes us and faithfully read it. But we always want to read it with um, a view of what came before us, right? Seeing that God has built... His church for now for two thousand years since Christ and going back even to the Old Testament, um, so it's certainly not to suggest that everything that can be discovered in the Scripture has been and is fully understood, um, but but yeah I think that these so far from what we see these are some of the best ways to read it. Good question. Yeah, yeah, so there's, within the preterism, if any of you went home and Googled preterism uh, after the last couple of weeks, you probably saw links to something that's called hyperpreterism. Um, all right, no one look. <laughs> Technology is failing us. We might just work through it without this. It does not want to work right now. Hey, Aaron, let's go ahead and just turn this off, and we can, um, yeah, that's just not working. You got the remote? All right, thank you. Sorry about that, everyone. Okay. Here, you can send this to yourself and figure it out. <laughs> All right. All right, so everybody have their Bibles. We're doing this the way we should do it, right? Okay. Who had the... I was in the middle of answering a question. Hyper- thank you. So there are different views, kind of fringe ones. So if you Googled preterism, you probably came across something called hyperpreterism, which would be a heretical view which they they go so far as to say everything in the Bible has been completed. There is no hope for the future. There is no, Jesus is not coming back. Um, I heard one uh, one person say the creeds did not settle on anything uh, as far as eschatology um, with those original creeds and confessions, except for the fact that full preterism is wrong, (laughs) right? That Jesus is coming back. And then you can go, um, so if you have kind of preterism and then dispensationalism, you can go hyper-dispensationalism. And they say the church didn't start until Acts chapter 9, that with Paul's conversion in the New Testament, um, the only books that are written to us, to the church, are Paul's letters. So the Gospels are not for us. Hebrews is not for us. Peter is not for us. Um, and, and they, they do some, some weird things that would be very concerning as well. So on both sides of the spectrum, you've got people who go even further into... Um, really unhealthy theologies and ways of reading the Bible. Yeah, so the, the idealist view is the perspective that uh, the way that the, um, the tribulation is played out in, um, in Revelation or in the Olivet Discourse. And I use the example of the second horse, the red horse that goes out with death and so on, that that horse is constantly riding out in different ways throughout history and in, and in different forms and so on. The historicist would look at that and say, that was actually speaking of the Roman Empire. So we're always in tribulation, but these moments are being interpreted differently throughout history. Very concrete moments in time where the idealist is more of a... Um, this idea that, that war or plague or famine might come, and it will come in different forms all throughout. So, excuse me, the tribulation in Matthew and in Revelation is referring to um, just realities that we experience constantly. It could look like um, the black plague or it could look like COVID, it could look like tidal waves or whatever. It, um, some of this disaster would just kind of play itself out in different forms. Yeah, yeah, on yeah, and on exactly, and then on differing levels as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the historical premillennial, which would be the historicist one, we see a lot of that in the church fathers, and then. The amillennial and postmillennial, or the preterist and the idealist, were both present with the church fathers as well. Uh, Darby, but yes. It was popularized by Schofield. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Any other questions? Kylie. Yeah, you know, hold that question for a couple minutes because we're going to get into it. He actually talks about that. So that's a really good question that will be answered for us. I love that question, Kylie. Good job. Okay, so now let's begin without our screen. So you have your notes or your phones or your Bible, so we'll kind of work through it together this way. Um, all right, so yes, going back to chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And from Jesus Christ, the, first, uh, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the king of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So we have this little doxological moment at the very beginning of this book, um, singing praise to Christ. And why, why is John singing praise to Christ here? is because of what he has done, right? He has freed us from our sins. The way he has done that is he has come and he has conquered death, right? He has conquered the works of the evil one, as he says in uh, 1 John. He has come to forgive us our sins. He has stripped the dark powers of their inheritance, of the world, and so on. He has conquered all. He has made us a kingdom, He's established his kingdom, which I'll get into here in a little while. Priest to his God and Father. So this is to say that no longer do we need a high priest that is going to uh, mediate for us here on earth, but rather Christ is the high priest and he has made us priests that are able to come in in Christ to the very presence of the Father. And then he, he praises him by saying to him, that is Christ, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Right? So Even here, he is lifting up Jesus as being the ultimate one, the ruler, the authority, the one who is victorious. Then he picks this up even more in verse 7, where he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So here, he goes right after this little doxological piece of saying, he has glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, listen up, right? This is, this is a, an emphatic. Um, get your attention. Behold, look at this, right? He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. So what is this coming with the clouds that John is referring to here? It is not <clears throat> the second coming of Christ, which we often think, right, when it says he's coming with the clouds because, and we have good reason to think of this, because Acts um, notes that when Jesus ascended, the disciples were looking at Jesus, and the angel comes to the disciples and says, what are you doing here looking up into the sky? Don't you realize he's going to come back the same way that he went up, right? So he's also coming back on the clouds, and there's a whole symbolic um, world of what that means with, with the clouds. But this is not referring to that coming back, on the clouds at the end of time, but rather this is referring to when Jesus went up in the clouds because this is quoting Daniel chapter 7, right? Daniel chapter 7 is speaking of the ascension of the son of man, the one who is like a son of man, who go, who comes on the clouds and so on. He's, he is referring to This Jesus who ascends and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and in his ascension, he ascends in the clouds, he's brought into the throne room of God, and he is given absolute authority over all things, which we see in Daniel 7. I believe they're in your notes. Are they in your notes? Okay. Some of the passages I don't think I put in your notes, so let me know if you don't see them, and I can make sure I highlight them even more. But Daniel 7, verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. See, I saw with the clouds of heaven one who came like a son of man, right? And then it says, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So in Daniel's vision, he's not seeing one like the Son of Man coming down from heaven. He's seeing one like the Son of Man ascend up into heaven and coming to the Ancient of Days and is presented before him. And then it says in verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Those three things kind of sound familiar. Right? We just read them, right, in the previous verse. It's given glory, dominion, and a kingdom. Um, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. All right. So this is, this is what John is seeing. This is what he is proclaiming is this son of man, this risen and ascended Christ, ascending to the right hand of the father. And because of his victory over Satan, sin, and death, ransoming a people for himself. God gives this son all authority over heaven and earth, which Jesus says in His, um, in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's all given to him so that he might have dominion and glory and a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that will never fail. It's a kingdom that will never um, break. It's a kingdom that will never lose. It is an eternal kingdom. It will not pass away and it shall not be destroyed. So this is, Uh, in John's imagination, in John's words, this is what he's trying to convince us of, is the superiority of Christ, his rule and reign over all things, his dominion. And then even more than that, he goes to verse eight and says, I am, speaking of, this is Jesus speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first letter and last letter in the Greek alphabet. That's like saying, I am the A to Z, (laughs) I am the Alpha, the Omega, I am the beginning, I am the end, right? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. (laughs) He's saying there is absolutely nothing that can compare to me. He's the one that rules and reigns over all. So this is like a little preamble, a little introduction to what he's about to get into in these next few verses. Okay, so do we see this? Do you understand how this book is already starting to see um, put Christ into focus as the very center of this book, as the very center of our theology, as the very center of our worship? And when we see it that way, at the very center of our lives. Because the, the truth is that Jesus has risen. He has ascended. He is sitting at the right hand of God right now. He has authority over all the earth. And his kingdom is advancing. His dominion will not fail. His kingdom will not pass away, Right? this is the Jesus that we serve today. So when we look around at our world and say, it doesn't seem like he's ruling and reigning, maybe we should be thinking of, this is not post-Christian, this is pre-Christian, because this kingdom that he has established is not going to fail, it's not going to go away. Thoughts on that, questions, clarifications? Right. Yeah, yeah. So Daniel seven, these verses in Daniel seven are almost like a little parentheses in the middle of these other visions of these four beasts that come forward. And what we see happening is these four beasts. One is worse than the next, and so on. Um, the fourth beast is eventually. Uh, destroyed and is conquered and the kingdom that is given is given to the people of excuse me the people of the king right so it's given to his people which is revelation alludes to as well but the yeah the perspective of daniel in chapter 7 is not looking at things from uh, an earthly perspective but from a heavenly perspective yeah good question Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so that's, that's a, a reference to Zechariah chapter four I think it's, I think it's verse four um, or chapter four and this is uh, of one of Zechariah's night visions and so on, and he's talking about the, the one they will look on the one whom they've pierced and so on and this is a reference from Zechariah's position of looking forward to Christ coming, and the Jews will look upon him, and they will wail, and they will mourn, and so on. When John utilizes this prophecy, he is now saying the whole earth will look at Christ this way. And the way that the world looks at Christ this way is through the preaching of his word and the advance as the gospel goes forward. Because in, in John's gospel, we see that... Um, when Christ rules and reigns, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw all peoples to himself. And he says, and this is the judgment on the world, right? Uh, the evil one will be cast out and so on. So when Christ is upon the cross, it is, it is a two-edged sword, if you would. Uh, one is destroying the works of the evil one, casting out Satan, saving, bringing salvation to his people. And then the other side is this is judgment upon Israel. This is judgment upon all those who don't believe in him because he is the only way. To come to the Father. So if you do not believe in this, then this, this moment upon the cross is not only salvation for God's people, but is also damnation for those who, who don't believe because of what took place on the cross. So when, yeah, something similar to that, yeah. So when he utilizes this verse from Zechariah, he kind of expands it to this um, global sort of implication that the nations will look on him and, and wail because. We heard, but we didn't believe. Or he, that 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 um, crucified one now testifies as the faithful witness against us. So, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, good, good, good. Okay, other questions. Kylie so in yeah in Zechariah there's there's kind of the hope of that that when they see the, that when they see Jesus they will wail and repent for their for their um, because of their sins right but then afterwards we see that some will be able to to will see it and it will, they'll wail and not repent, but they'll wail for other reasons because they did not believe in him. So John does this thing with this passage in Zechariah that is um, pretty interesting, the way he describes it. Yeah, good question. Okay, now, Kylie, coming back to your first question, we see here in verse 9... This is where we kind of begin the vision of the Son of Man. Uh, a lot of your Bibles might have that as kind of the pericope, the little title there. And verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and, and the patient endurance uh, that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here we have the author introduced to us, Right says, I, John, he identifies himself. And this is absolutely, I'll say, the Apostle John, the same author as the Gospel of John. The two books work together in, in symmetry. They actually form a big chiasm and so on. If you go to like secular universities, they will try to say, oh, this is a different John. And people are always trying to call into question who wrote the different books of the Bible. The Apostle John wrote Revelation, okay? We can be sure of that. So this is who he is. He identifies himself. This is who I am. And then he identifies him even further, saying, I am your brother, right? I am your brother. We are family in the faith. From the youngest believer in a suffering church to the beloved disciple who walked with Jesus, we are brothers in the faith. Christ is um, reorganizing. He is redefining what family looks like. So John is able to write to the brothers and sisters and say, I am your brother in Christ. We are family in Christ. And then he goes, not only that, but also your partner in the tribulation. This word partner is companion or fellow pilgrim, that we are going through this tribulation together. This is one of the verses and one of the reasons why at Exodus Church, if you join the church, we don't call it membership. We call it partnership in the gospel, right? We we partner together in the church because this is what we are, right? We're not all like gold card holding members to Costco. Um, That's not what it is. We are partners in the gospel. Fellow pilgrims, side by side, we are a family in Christ pursuing him. And then he goes on, we're partner in the tribulation, right? This tribulation is referring to the tribulations that are explained in the book of Revelation and in the Olivet Discourse, Right, John does not have this sort of escapism mentality towards suffering and pain. You'll see this in a lot of health and wealth gospel uh, churches, that if, if you really believe in Jesus, he doesn't want you to suffer. He will save you from that. If you give money, you'll, give, um, you'll be saved from this pain. Um, oftentimes we think things are getting bad. Hopefully we will get out of here before things get really bad. There's this escapism sort of thing wrapped up in the faith often. But John here is saying that's not the case. I right? am your partner. I am your brother in the tribulation. We are going through this together. Tribulation and suffering and pain is always a part of the Christian life because we follow a Savior who was crucified, dead, and buried, but we don't suffer. We, don't, we are not persecuted without hope right? because of the resurrection. What comes on the other side of, of this life is the resurrection in Christ. So our suffering is not in vain right? We suffer with Christ. We suffer with one another. And as C.S. Lewis talks about, God uses our suffering like a megaphone to awaken a deaf world. We see this happening throughout the book of Acts when persecution would come. Um, The church is like a puddle, right? And as soon as you step on that puddle, it splashes out and it causes all these other little puddles, right? Persecution causes the church to spread and to grow and to... See, churches planted and communities established because of suffering. It's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. The people of God always walk with a limp. We always walk with suffering and pain. Yet in that, God shows himself victorious and strong. So John is not trying to escape any sort of tribulation. He's not trying to downplay anything, but rather he's saying, I am in this with you. We are in this together. Partners in the tribulation and the kingdom. So here are the two sides, the positive and the negative to a certain degree of how John is partnering with those Christians and how we partner together, right? We partner together in tribulation and we partner together in the kingdom. John... Uh, his understanding of the kingdom is one that is certainly rooted and based in the Old Testament, but also developed even in Christ's ministry. Jesus talked about the kingdom often. We got slides now? Thanks, Aaron. I just need like a laser pointer or something. Or I can just write on the TVs. Um, so the tribulation, this is that tribulation that Revelation is talking about and that the it Discourse is talking about, and then the kingdom. In John's thinking, he is a part of the kingdom of God, right? It is a kingdom that he experiences here and in the present. It is not something from the past. It is not something in the future, but it is here and now. He is participating in it. He sees himself as a citizen of this kingdom along with the other brothers and sisters who are in Christ, so John's understanding of the kingdom, again, is certainly through Jesus' teachings, but primarily it comes from, really, the book of Daniel, and in two places. One, we've already looked, Daniel chapter 7, when we see what is given to the ascended Son of Man, Jesus, is given dominion in a kingdom that will never fail, never pass away, right? He, Christ establishes his rule and reign as he is ascended at the right hand of the Father, Um, And Daniel chapter 7 highlights this for us. But we also see his kingdom developed uh, prophetically in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is most certainly in John's mind as he is thinking through what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And what kind of kingdom is this? And as I said at the very beginning, Revelation is not about a king who is weak or fragile or fails but rather it is about the triumphant, victorious king who takes dominion of all things. And this comes in Daniel chapter two uh, in prophetic form. So Daniel two, we probably remember the story from either our Bible reading or even as kids with the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he has this dream of this statue. You remember and the head is gold and um, you have silver and you have bronze and you have iron and you have feet that are mixed with iron and clay and so on. So this is a very important passage in John's thinking and in the thinking of the New Testament as to what the kingdom of God is all about. So in Daniel chapter 2, I'm not gonna read through the whole thing, but it is about the statue, and it is um, the explanation. Well, I'll I'll read the, the first few verses that will be up on the screen, and then I'll go into the explanation. So starting in verse 31, it says, "'You saw, O king, and behold, a great image.'" This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, those are important words to remember as we move through um, Revelation 1. It's mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Okay? The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs, that would be its stomach and thighs, are of bronze. Its legs of iron and its feet partly iron and partly clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them to pieces. So it doesn't hit it in the head or in the chest or in the arms or thighs or the legs, but the feet. All right, hits them in the feet, and they are broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces. So it struck the feet, but the entire thing broke to pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay? So real quick, what what are these these medals and the statue representing? They represent different kingdoms between the time of Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that's the head, right? The golden head is king of Babylon, the Babylonian empire. And then we see the Persians come in, the Medes and the Persians, they come in, they do war with the Babylonians and they conquer. So we see that being the chest and the arms of silver. And then you see Greece that follows, and, which is the belly and the thighs of bronze. And then the Roman Empire comes in, which is the, the legs of iron, okay? So these are the four kingdoms that come first. You have Babylon, you have the Persians, you have Greece, and you have the Roman Empire. And then you have the feet of iron and clay. So iron, we already know what that is because that is Rome, right? The legs of iron are Rome. The feet that have iron in them are also Rome, but there's something mixed into this as well. Now, the clay is an interesting thing because throughout the Old Testament, Israel is so often viewed as clay in the hands of the potter. For better or for worse, even in Jeremiah and other prophetic uh, literature, we see Israel being like clay that will be smashed because of their disobedience. So what we see here is, and the word for clay is actually fresh clay. It's still wet. It's new. It hasn't even, it hasn't even really gotten firm or, or hardened up yet. So this is referring to the Jewish people in Second Temple Judaism who are now beginning to interwed uh, liturgically, theologically, and uh, religiously with the Roman Empire. If you remember during the time of Jesus, when Jesus is going to the cross and They're saying, don't don't you want me to release Jesus? And how do the Jews respond? We have no king but Caesar, right? You have the Jews that are now claiming Rome as their king, as their headship, as their authority. This is our dominion. This is the mixing together of iron and clay of the feet. So then the rock comes at a particular time, which is the time of Christ, right? Jesus is the rock, right, spoiler alert, right, Jesus is the rock, who comes, he hits the feet of iron and clay, which is the moment where Rome and Israel are interwetting with each other, and the whole thing crumbles, which is to say, this rock is now taking dominion of all the kingdoms of all time, right, not just Rome or just Jerusalem, but the whole system, the whole world is coming down and something new is coming, a new kingdom, which is the rock. And what happens to this rock? It becomes a great mountain and it fills the whole earth, right? So this is, again, why we should think of evil in this world or countries that are not submitted, not as post-Christian, but as pre-Christian because this rock is becoming a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And we see in verse 44 of Daniel chapter two, this is explained for us a little bit, says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is what the rock has done and will do, which is why in Revelation chapter 11, it's a beautiful passage. Verse 15, it says, then the seventh trump, or excuse me, and then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever, right? This is one of those verses that kind of allude back to Daniel chapter two to say, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and that kingdom, like the mountain in Daniel chapter two, will reign forever and ever, like the kingdom in Daniel chapter seven will go on forever and ever, and it will not fail. So this is the kingdom, this rock, this mountain, This unshakable kingdom, as Hebrews calls it, is the kingdom that John sees himself firmly placed in as a citizen of, pledge allegiance to the king of that kingdom, which rules all and is over all. Okay, are there any questions on that? Kylie. Is the mountain the church? Is that what you're asking? Yes. As the church grows, that is the church is a good understanding of what the kingdom of God or what this mountain looks like. Because as the church grows, we are the body of Christ and we go forward, which he actually gets into in a little while. So that's correct. As you see the church grow in advance, that is the same thing as this rock or this mountain growing. Well, I'm not sure about the seven mountain mandate. Okay. Gotcha. Sure. Yeah, right. So that, that part of the struggle, right, is we see maybe a very similar end goal, which most theology would agree on a very similar end, but the means in which we get there will vary. So I know the new apostolic Reformation thing that is out there uh, will be a flash in the pan, and it will be gone soon. It's, it's not sustainable. It is heretical from top to bottom. Though they have a language, which most false theologies do, that they grab hold of biblical teaching, and they say, this is what we believe also, but let us now try to accomplish this in ways that the Bible would say, what, what are you doing? You know, like, that, that, that doesn't compute. That's not in keeping. Um, but yeah, and then the seven mountains, that's, that's used later on in Revelation with the seven hills and so on. That's speaking of the Roman Empire itself, which was known as the seven-hilled kingdom and so on. Yeah, but that would not be the same as the... Mountain of Daniel 2, right? Because that's one mountain that grows to cover the whole earth, not seven. So, but good. That's a good connection. I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. What's the there anything to that? in my head, I see a rock getting wet play. Yeah, I but think it's. Yeah, so I think when when we see Jesus coming, um, and the day that he lived. They are post-exilic, but the temple isn't yet rebuilt. They, they don't quite have everything put together yet. Um, so within the, 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 the Jewish world and history, you have these different moments in time. Biblical history would be the same way. They're, they're different worlds even. You have Genesis to the flood. That is a world. Peter talks about this as being that world that once was or something like that. That world was destroyed with the flood. And then you have the world of the Mosaic covenant, which goes essentially from, from Noah through Abraham, Abrahamic covenant and so on, all the way to Moses. Moses is established as the uh, leader of that covenant or of that world to a certain degree. And then that goes away when uh, at Shiloh, do you remember when the tabernacle was stolen by the Philistines and, and so on? That world basically dies then. And then you have the Davidic kingdom. And that goes till exile. And then the world of the New Testament is the post-exilic world where the Jewish nation, they, they're not formed as their, their identity is all messed up, right? They've been in exile. The, the, the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms have not actually reconciled. The north has assimilated into pagan culture. So the temple's not even fully rebuilt, um, So that's the wet clay. It's actually a very specific moment in time, as to say. It's there, but it's still wet. It it hasn't even hardened yet. So, yeah. Good question. No one's in agreement on anything with Revelation (laughs) or Daniel. (laughs) No, it is. Yeah. So the first four, most Bible-believing Christians understand it as, as such. Within some of the liberal things, there's a little debate between, and this is all historical stuff with the Persian Empire, and when did they fall, and when was Daniel written. So they'll do some funny stuff with that. But those first four, there's almost consensus on what the feet are as far as the iron and clay, Some will say that's a totally separate kingdom that has yet to come. Some would say that is a kingdom that is always at play right now. And then some would say that it is iron, Rome, clay, the the Jewish nation um, intermixing there. So For for the most part, there's consensus. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Any other questions? Okay. Let's keep going. Um, let's see, he also talks about his partner, brotherhood and partnership, not only with tribulation in the kingdom, but also endurance or, or continuing to run together the race that is set before us. This is a big theme in Paul. Um, again, John does not separate himself from the need to faithfully endure in the faith uh, from young kids in the faith that are, are new and they, they don't know a lot. This great apostolic um, authority in the church is saying, I'm your partner in this journey, but also we're going to continue to run this together even in the midst of circum- um, persecution, right? So he says, I have likewise been persecuted, which is what we see when he talks about him being in Patmos and so on, that he is their fellow in persecution, and he's had certainly the temptations to recant and move away, but he endures, okay? All right, let's look at verse 10. It says, I was in the spirit... On the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. This verse is awesome, right? So, this actually goes back to one of Kylie's questions as well, as far as what is John seeing and are other people seeing this as well? So, no, the book of Revelation is a vision given to John and to nobody else, right? So, nobody else is kind of watching these events unfold as John is and writing a separate account of, of the book of Revelation or these visions. It is just John, and he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. This is a cool thing because when he talks about on the Lord's day, this is the first day of the week. This is Sunday. This is worship, okay? So John, who is a pastor, is saying, I was in the spirit. That is, um, the, the, the spirit of God is at work in me. I am ministering, if you would, on the Lord's day, and then something happens, I heard a voice, or I heard behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet. So why would John say it happened behind him on the Lord's Day while he's in the Spirit? And these are clues to what's going on in Revelation. There's lots of things going on in Revelation. One of them is it's a worship service, right? It's laid out as a worship service for us. It's a heavenly worship service. And John is caught up into it. And this is where he begins to be caught up into this heavenly worship service. And it's laid out as a pastor, like myself, standing in front of you, in the spirit, ready to preach to you on the Lord's day. You're looking at me, I'm looking at you, and then I hear a voice behind me. He doesn't turn, but rather he hears it, and it sounds like a trumpet. And this is what the rest of the book of Revelation is about, this voice and what it says and so on. So here we have this sort of liturgical theology at play here where John is saying that he is, again, liturgically speaking, standing in the place of Christ for the people, and giving them the words of Christ, and what he hears behind them is Christ himself speaking. Okay? And then if we were to follow this idea through the book of Revelation, we will see that it, one way we can outline it and structure it is as a worship service. So... In chapter 1, this is the call to worship, which we have seen certainly in these verses and particularly here in verse 10. Um, This call to worship, chapters 2 and 3, which is the seven churches, this is the time of confession, right? This this book is written to the churches, but particularly, he then speaks to each of the seven, and he calls them out and, and reveals sin to them. So when we come into worship, we hear the, the call to worship, and then we move into a time of confession where the Spirit of God reveals our sins. Maybe it's something we've been stewing on over the last week, and, um, or the Lord brings it to our hearts at, this, at that moment, but there is a revelation or a revealing of our sin, which is what we see in 2 and 3. And then following that, you have the assurance of pardon, which we see in four and five, which is the declaration of the kingdom of God and the forgiveness that comes with the lamb. And there's these songs in chapter five that are just beautiful about this, the lamb who has is, who is conquered, who is forgiven and so on. And then following that, we see essentially the preaching as the seals and the, um, uh, the trumpets are open. The seals are open to the book and the trumpets are proclaimed and so on. Um, in chapter 10, we see John having to eat a scroll, which is sweet to the, uh, to the tongue, but bitter in the stomach, and these are the words of God that he has to eat to give to people, right? So it's sweet to bring them in, but it, does this, it's, it causes turmoil as well. This would be the, the, the preaching. We see the Lord's Supper at the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19, and then in 22, you have this benediction where he, where he says there's this call for all those to essentially to go out and then to come in to, to Christ, um, a call to take the gospel to the nations. We see this in uh, verse 17. So one way we can even look at the book of Revelation is a divine heavenly worship service uh, that ultimately, ultimately we are then to try to make that a reality on earth. Um, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes on in verse, 10, in verse 11. It says, saying, write, uh, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So this is the audience of the book of Revelation. Write down what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These are the seven churches we'll look at in the next few weeks together in chapters two and three. And then it comes to verse 12, and this is where we, we pick back up this kind of coronation. Let's explain who this Jesus is and all of his dominion. Okay, He gave us a sample. He spoke to it some. He introduced himself, who he is, what he's about. He introduces who he's writing to, and now he gets right back to Christ. Okay, Verse 12, then I turned. So he heard the voice. Then he turns in verse 12 to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Again, that's a phrase from Daniel that we've already talked about. One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. All right, so when you see or hear these words, what, what might come to mind? What are some of the images? If we were to try to think through how the Bible uses symbolism, what, what comes to mind when we hear these verses? Okay, well, yeah, he says that in verse 20. He explains that. But when you think about golden lampstands, what do you think of? The tabernacle, right, the tabernacle. So in the tabernacle, you have basically a golden lampstand and uh, it looked something like this, right? Where you have a menorah, right? And you have these lamps here. So this, when you walk into the tabernacle, after going through the altar, your, your sin is, if you're a priest, right, your, your sin has been atoned for, if you would, by the, the sacrificial lamb on the altar. You then come to the wash basin. You have to wash yourself. If you were to walk into the tabernacle, you would walk into this kind of long corridor room. It's actually two squares, right? Um, it's twice as long as it is wide. And you turn to the right and you would see, or for you, the right, and you'd see a table of showbread. Right? This bread that has to be changed out constantly. And then you would then turn to your left, and you'd see this lampstand. And this lampstand was to be constantly lit. Okay? It was a golden lampstand. And one of the points of this lampstand is to symbolize the presence of Christ in the Spirit um, with Israel. And they were to be a light to the nations. Okay? This is part of the symbolism of the lampstand. It was never to go out. They would change the oil, but the flames were never supposed to go out. Um, So when we hear lampstand in Revelation, we should be thinking tabernacle, okay? And what we will discover is in this passage, we see Jesus as, we could call him the tabernacle man, (laughs) because the description of Jesus is a description of the tabernacle in a lot of ways, but it's more than that. It's a glorified tabernacle. But it's not just a tabernacle. We also see a description of a priest, but not just a regular priest, a glorified priest. And not just a priest, but we also see the description of a ruler, one who has authority over all things, who is in himself an empire, a kingdom. Okay, We see all of these things kind of coming out and being woven together throughout this uh, passage. So we see the lampstands. So we should be thinking tabernacle. And then it says In verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man. So this is where we we get a little sideways. For one, it says we see seven, or I saw seven golden lampstands. This is a lampstand with seven lamps, but not all lampstands had seven lamps, right? Oftentimes, lampstands, the most common lampstands, were one with a little flame. Right? So he sees seven lampstands. That doesn't mean he sees this, though our mind should be going to this. So it goes on to say he sees seven golden lampstands. Let's say maybe seven individual lampstands. And then in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Okay? So maybe, well, not maybe, this is how we should think about this, is we have the Son of Man here. That's a very bad proportion. <laughs> and let's throw on one more because there's seven. Th- this is what he's he's wanting us to see, right? Is this lampstand, which represents the spirit of God, in the tabernacle, the 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 witness to the world, and so on. These seven golden lampstands, and there's one in the midst at the very center, the one that these lamps are all around. So maybe we could even see it as almost like a 3D, you know, lampstand with this one in the center and these seven lamps kind of connected to the one in the center. Okay. And then as Jeff mentioned in chapter, in verse 20, we see what these lampstands actually mean, which is the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what we see is one in the midst of the churches, in the midst of the lampstands, Christ and his church. The the number seven, when it talks about the seven churches, it's the universal church, the full church from beginning to end. And where is the church and where is Christ? He's in the midst of his church and the church is connected to the one in the midst, in the center. Okay, This is that, again, that kind of whole Christ, total Christ, totus Christus thing. We have Christ and his bride and his body and his lampstands and his church, all connected together. He is in the midst. One of the things that the lampstand, according to, I believe it's an exodus, um, but the lampstand, the menorah in the tabernacle is shaped like a tree on purpose, and it is to symbolize the tree of life. It is to, there's olive wood, and there's all sorts of tree imagery all throughout the tabernacle, But we also see this connection with the lampstand and the tree of life, Christ being the tree of life. And in John chapter 15, he talks about himself being the vine and we are the branches as well. So this tree of life, lampstand, all of these images work together to show our union with Christ. Which then, if we think about how Christ has been explained, the fact that we are united with him means we are firmly set, as John was in this kingdom, with the king at the center, an unshakable kingdom, right? A victorious kingdom, one that is taking dominion by the advancement of the gospel. Okay, then it goes on a little bit further to say he was clothed with a long robe and a gold sash. You know what that might be kind of referencing to? This is where it gets a lot really, really interesting. The whole thing is interesting, but this is incredibly interesting. This is the um, attire of the high priest. We see this in Exodus 28, we see this in Exodus 29, we see this in Exodus 35, we see this in Leviticus 16, I think. Um, The high priest is adorned with this long robe and a sash. But not only that, you see, with the high priest, what the high priest was um, is this Christ figure for Israel, right? Jesus comes as the ultimate high priest, and the high priest had special clothes, special clothes of this Linen. This this linen is priestly material. This linen robe. He had this ephod or ephod, depending on how you want to pronounce it. This chest plate that had 12 different stones. And these stones were all different colors of reds and blues and greens and yellows and so on. He had golden cords that would wrap around his collar. He had golden sashes. He had red and purple sash in in different eras and and so on. Um, He had a, a crown, a golden crown. He had a turban, right, of linen, a, a hat that he would wear with a golden crown over top of the hat. And what all of this is, is an incredibly symbolic picture of the glory cloud of God, of the, of the pillar of fire and smoke that led Israel out, of the cloud that came down on Mount Sinai. Um, this glory cloud, this was the presence of, of God in the midst of his people, Right? When they saw that, it was a theophany. It was God himself. Um, some would call it the, the, the glory cloud of the spirit or the spirit cloud. Uh, we see this coming up in, Revel, um, in Elijah's life when he's on the mountain, that still small voice piece is this glory cloud coming and then this deafening silence, which is a very interesting passage. But what the high priest was is this embodied glory cloud. When they looked at the high priest, they were to remember the pillar of smoke and fire. When the sun would hit his crown and it would, um, the, the jewels would glisten and shine and sparkle and so on, it was to be the lightning and the thunder. All of this stuff is going on in this glory cloud as it shows up in Ezekiel and in Exodus. It's the same glory cloud that hovered over the face of the waters, at creation with the Spirit doing so. This is what the priest was dressed up as, Right? dressed up as the glory cloud. So then we see Jesus coming, and he is a glorified version of the high priest, which is the ultimate glory cloud, God himself um, represented in his um, attire, grabbing hold of this Old Testament theophany of who God is. Um, Does that make sense? Can I bring more clarity to that? you are talking about the whole description of Jesus as being well, one in in the, in the fire mm-hmm. it's, that it's like Christ in the furnace or like that was supposed to be Well sure. So th- there's a part when it talks about um, his feet as burnished bronze which is this very shiny as if it was in the fire sort of thing. So there might be a connection there that someone has made for you. Okay. But overall this description of Revelation 1 is not trying to grab and describe what happened in the fiery furnace, though that was Christ, same figure, and certainly in a glorified the, the, uh, theophanic expression, which is a fancy way of saying, God made visible. Um, so so there's certainly connections there, but it wouldn't necessarily be have interpretive weight as in to say to understand this, we have to know about that, okay Good, all right so. He's dressed as a high priest, which is to say he is ultimately dressed as, um, as the very glory cloud of God, right? With the fire, the lightning, the, 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 um, the cloud itself, and so on. Um, and this is true. Everything from the linen to his chest plate, which is full of jewels, to the golden crown, to the stones. He had on his shoulder straps, um, The braided chains of gold, the whole thing was to produce the effect of a fiery light, right? This is the effect. This is a fiery man, which is the the presence of God, the glory cloud of God. Um, Okay, so moving on to verse 14, he continues to explain this. says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, right? So he keeps explaining this, this whiteness wool and snow. His eyes were like flames of fire, okay? So it's not just the, the jewels on the high priest's plate that look like fire when the sun hit him, but in this glorified high priest, his eyes looked like fire, right? Coming out was fire. Um, but it says uh, white hair as well. White hair is how the Ancient of Days is described in Daniel chapter 7, um, which is a glorious thing, which our culture today, you know, we like to dye our hair when it starts going white um, because we think there's more glory in youth, but that's not true biblically. So all those who have white hair, you're the most glorious of us all. Um, There is glory in white hair, biblically speaking. But we also see that this would represent the, the linen turban of the high priest, right? The high priest wore that white linen hat, which could be like white hair. So in Jesus, we see... This association with God himself, the Ancient of Days in chapter Daniel 7, along with the high priest again, eyes of fire. Fire not only connects with the high priest and how, what he wore, but it's also um, fire is constantly seen as a symbol of discernment and judgment. In Zechariah 4 and other places in scripture, we see that the eyes of God are going back and forth, discerning, judging, knowing what is right, what is wrong. Hebrews talks about this as well. None of us can escape his gaze. We're all naked and exposed before him who sees all. This is all symbolized in this fiery eyes. So if there's been an injustice in your life, to read this passage and see Jesus as one with eyes of fire should give us hope. There is vindication to come. There is justice that is to come because the one who has eyes of fire won't miss anything. All things will be tested. All things will be approved by this one. His feet were like burnished bronze. Oh, I, I jumped ahead. Verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. So this is probably that, the Daniel um, and his friends in the fiery furnace story. Um, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. So it says his feet were like burnished bronze. So now we have this connection going back to Daniel 2 with the statue. Right? This is a, a metallic man, a man of, of, of metal. His feet all of a sudden now are bronze, burnished bronze, shiny as if it was in a fire. So this is to say everything that that statue represented as far as the kingdoms on the earth, Jesus is the ultimate king of those kingdoms. Right? So he is the ultimate fulfillment or he is the conqueror of all those kingdoms as well. So it's kind of a similar picture with the mountain in Daniel 2. That if if you were to destroy this statue, what would you put in its place? you put Jesus, right? He is the one who rules all kingdoms from head to toe. And his feet are not like clay but burnished bronze. Um, In other words, yeah, the, the kingdom of Christ, he is in himself, this empire, this kingdom as it advances. And then it says, a voice like the roar of many waters... This is the sound of the glory cloud in Ezekiel chapter 1. When the glory cloud arrives, when God arrives in his chariots, uh, it sounds like rushing waters, many waters, an ocean that is almost screaming at you, this deafening sound of water. And when we were in Florida a couple weeks ago, we had a hotel that was right on the, on the beach, which was super cool. We're up on like the fourth floor. Um, but it's probably 200 yards to the beach, but we could see it. And we were sitting out there drinking coffee in the morning and as the tide was coming in. And how loud those waves are when they crash on the beach is incredible. You know, you, you would think, yeah, it's loud if you're right next to it. But here we are a few hundred yards away up on the fourth floor. And it is, I mean, we have to speak over them, right? Just it sounds like it's right in front of us. So this is that sort of picture that John is saying. It is the sound of many waters, of Tidal waves crashing, you know, is what his voice sounded like, which is what Ezekiel does in chapter 1. Ezekiel does this in chapter 43 when God's glory returns to his people. Ezekiel 11, the glory of God left the temple, and you have all of of these prophecies of judgments and so on. And then 43, you have this new covenant, this new kingdom that is coming, and God arrives, and it sounds like um, roaring water or many waters in Isaiah 43. And then we also see the symbolism of waters, keeping even in Isaiah, is waters is something that constantly purifies throughout the Bible. We see this in the tabernacle, right? They have to be washed to be purified by the waters. But if we kept going in Ezekiel, when we come to verse chapter 47, we see water that flows from the temple, and it goes out eventually to the whole world. And everywhere it goes, it purifies. It brings life. It recreates that which is dead it starts as just a trickle it goes ankle deep waist deep or knee deep waist deep and then it's so deep nobody can swim through it right and everywhere it goes it turns the the world into like a garden of eden eventually it goes to the dead sea where nothing can live and in the the dead sea it says then there are fish and there are trees and there's shrubs and there's it's like a garden right where this water goes it purifies it makes things new um so when God speaks, when his voice goes out, it goes out with power. It goes out with glory that's associated with God himself in Ezekiel 1 and 43. But it also goes out and it restores, right? So how does the voice of God go out? It's through his word. It's through his people. We proclaim it with our lives. We, we share the gospel with people. This is the voice of many waters. This is the voice of God that he has given to us through his word. So this is where we see um, reformation or revival where the, the, the gospel is proclaimed and we see spiritually dead people come to life, made new. And when people are made new, they then begin to transform the world through work and family and businesses and education and so on. Kind of going back to what Connolly was saying, but in the right way, right? Is that we are to take hold of the world and submit it to God for his glory this is all connected with his voice that sounds like many waters. Goes forward, it makes, uh, it brings health and restoration where it goes. And then in verse sixteen, I'm going to just get through these next few, explain them, and then we'll do some questions. Um, in verse sixteen, it says, "In his right hand, he held seven stars." So we've seen seven lampstands, and now we see seven stars. Again. That word seven needs to be understood as representing the fullness of, right? So in his right hand, we see seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This is an incredible picture of who Christ is. So in his right hand, the right hand of God is the faithfulness of God and the strength of God, we see the people of God praying to him, uphold me, hold me tight with your right hand, with your victorious right hand, right? This is um, a part of God's, within the symbol symbolism and the economy of God as it's seen in scripture, the right hand of God is the one that um, protects his people, fights for his people, sustains his people, and so on. So it says in the right hand, he held seven stars, and then from his, well, let's talk about the seven stars We'll see in verse 20 in just a moment that those seven stars are the, um, the seven angels, or we could understand those as the seven pastors of those seven churches. Angel and pastor, are, or the word angel is angelos in Greek, which means messenger or, or angel, okay? So oftentimes, very human pastors are called an angelos, a messenger Of God, a pastor, and then there's other times where it's the supernatural being that is an angel. Okay, so there's there's there is different different opinions on who these angels are in these seven churches. Are they divine beings or are they messengers, pastors to them? But we'll get into that in the next couple weeks. Either way, um, we see seven stars. In his hand, stars are used all throughout the Bible to refer to the people of God. Paul says in Philippians that the the children of God are to shine like stars, right? In the Abrahamic covenant, God promises Abraham that you will have descendants that will outnumber the stars. Stars are seen as rulers. Stars are seen as those who are in authority, um, as kingdoms and so on. And then it says that uh, his face is like the sun. There's a lot that we could do here, but I want to make one little connection for you. The sun is seen as a hopeful victory that is to come. We see this in Malachi and some of the other minor prophets that, um, and in uh, Lamentations as well. That when the sun comes, when the sun arises, there's a new day and God's people will be victorious. And one of the great types of Christ in the Bible is Samson. He is a divine warrior of God. And Samson, the he- his Hebrew name, means sun. Right? So... When we see Jesus as uh, having a face like the sun, this is the one of hope, of victory, of a divine warrior that is to come, like Samson, a greater Samson, um, but one with a victorious right hand that fights for his people, and so on. And then out of his mouth comes uh, a two-edged sword, which is, we, can, we see this later in Revelation as well, in chapter 19, I believe, uh, that he's on the horse and out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Sword. In other words, the words of Christ, the words of Scripture, are what we use to do battle with. Paul talks about uh, the full armor of God in Ephesians, and the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, right? So these are some of the illusions the here, that when God speaks, when Christ speaks, we do battle. These are words that we use to fight our warfare. So why, when Jesus was in the, in the wilderness being tempted, how does he respond? How does he fight against Satan, he quotes scripture, right? Out of his mouth, it comes the, the, the sword of the spirit, this, this sharp two-edged sword that is to help him conquer the enemy and so on. Okay, and then in verse 17, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> I think we all would if we saw this, right? <laughs> Fall on at his feet as if dead, but he laid his right hand upon me, saying, fear not, I am the first, and the last. So that same right hand that he's holding the seven stars with, the same right hand that is victorious, when, David, when John, this, this little tiny apostle that is scared to the point of death, sees him and falls, this cosmic God, Christ, the, the, the conquering king, takes that right hand and puts it on John's shoulder and tells him, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. In other words, I am here. If I am here, you have nothing to be afraid of. Right? It's that same hand. And that's the same hand that we, we need to be thinking about. That. The, he, he does that for us. <laughs> right? when, it is the same Christ that puts his right hand upon us and says, Don't be afraid. I'm the first. I'm the last. There is nothing that is happening outside of his gaze of fiery eyes. There's nothing that is going to conquer the divine warrior with a face like the sun. There is no kingdom that's going to be able to take over the one who stands with the burnished bronze feet. Right? There is no sin that the great high priest cannot atone for. And he is the the glory of God embodied. He is the tabernacle embodied. He is the high priest embodied. And all of this puts his hand on you. He says, don't be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I want to, my goodness. (laughs) In verse 18, says, and the living one, or fear, uh, hold on, I missed a verse here. Fear not, I am the first and the last, and then he continues, and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and have the keys to death and Hades. That's the thing we're most afraid of, is death and Hades, and who has authority even over that? But the living one who conquered it. This is one of those pictures that Jesus says, I am the living one. I died and now I'm alive and I have the keys to death in Hades, right? He went to war against Satan, sin, and death. And how does he do it? He takes the weapons or the enemy's own weapon and cuts his head off. He crushes the head of the serpent. David does this with Goliath. How does David kill Goliath? Ultimately, he takes his own sword and cuts off Goliath's head right this is how Saul dies he dies by his own weapon this is one of the ironies all throughout the bible the enemies of god often are defeated by their own means or their own weapons so jesus looks at satan and sin says what is your greatest weapon it is death and he takes the sword that is death and he conquers death with it by death he conquered death and this is what he's saying i died and behold i'm alive <laughs> Right And now, because I have conquered death by its own weapon, I have the keys to death and Hades. There is no power of death that can come against you now because I'm the one that holds the keys. And then he says in 19, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, here's some explanation for us. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And that completes our reading of Revelation chapter one. But I I already gave some explanation to verse 20 earlier um, as we were talking. Are there any final thoughts or questions? Any points I can bring clarity to? What did you say Samson and Sun. S U N. Yep. So if you were to start calling you angel. Oh no. <laughs> Not at all. Maybe think about how Yes, that's right. you talking about Mount Sinai? Yeah. So, so certainly the tabernacle is like a miniature holy mountain, Mount Sinai, and so on. And there's this ascending as you move from outside to the Holy of Holies. You're elevating. You're going up. Um, and in the same way, the, the metals are becoming more precious. So you have bronze. You have, you have wood and, and, and linen and so on for the tent or the outside border. And then as you move in, you come to bronze, and then you come inside, and you come to um, gold, and then you move further in, it's all gold. But yeah, yeah. So, so part of that is, is understanding that Christ is the, the embodied tabernacle. Yeah, so he is the tabernacle man, right? This is, this is part of what Revelation chapter 1 shows us, which then connects to John 1 where he says, and he put on flesh and tabernacled among us. So I'll I'll show you something real quick. Are there other questions as I try to draw this? Because this is pretty cool. Not to keep you out, but we started a few minutes late, so I'm going to just take the liberty to show you one more thing. So the tabernacle is is something that is living. It's embodied. It it is not seen just as a structure, but it has its own sort of um, life to it, which is the very life of God, right? It's his home. He indwells it, and so on. Um, The tabernacle is set up like this. Very intentionally. That's not to to scale. (laughs) That's the the, um, Ark of the Covenant, right? And you have the lampstand here. You have the table of showbread here. Um, You have the basin and then the altar down here. Okay? So there is... Um, in Ezekiel, there's this conversation that Ezekiel has, um, or God is talking with him. And he talks about removing the heart of stone and placing a heart of flesh. Now, this heart of stone, we often think about as being, oh, you're hard hearted, right? You're, you're not sensitive to the Spirit of God, and so on. That's not what's going on, because this is seen as a body. The heart of stone is actually referring to the Holy of Holies and what was in the Holy of Holies, or in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, which were written on stone, right? And that's the heart of their life, right? It is at the very heart of everything they do is, is the Torah, the Ten Commandments. It's there. So you have this heart of stone. And what does Christ come? What, what does Christ do when he comes is he doesn't abolish the law, right? But he fulfills it. And he is now the new law. So he has taken the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh, okay? Christ is now the law, the law of Christ. And then we think about that, and we continue to go through and says, well, that makes sense, because if you look at how the whole thing is organized, it's it's set up like a human body, where you do something like this, and you've got the ribs over here, you've got the stomach, you've got, it's, it's, it's a living sort of thing. So when it talks about replacing the heart of flesh with the heart of or the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, it brings life into what's going on in the tabernacle. And Christ being the tabernacle man in Revelation 1 is all of this. And when John says he put on flesh and tabernacled among us, he brought all of that into himself and, and, and was the very dwelling place of God. It's a pretty cool thing. We could keep going with it, but it's, it's, a, it's kind of a cool, cool way to look at the, the tabernacle. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we are brought into this, right? We are to embody this as well. Is his law written on our hearts. Pretty cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That is that is the ultimate goal: is that Christ is seen as more glorious, and that's what Revelation does for us. It opens our eyes to see Jesus, literally revealed, you know, in all of His glory and dominion. It's good. Other questions? Yeah. yeah, so the temple is a glorified version of the tabernacle, right? So in the temple, you do actually have more lampstands and on both sides. I think it was seven, so I'm not sure which one. Whichever side Eve came out of, it's the opposite side open. (laughs) I'm kidding, that's not true. Yeah, and the table of showbread, if I remember correctly, the table of showbread was somewhere in here. I'll have to look at that again. I don't exactly remember where that was placed. But, but it's, yeah, it's, it's massive. And yeah, won't get into all that, but yeah. <laughs> Good. Back to last week. Uh, named that last night? P H A N A S. Fanas. Anything else? All right, good. So I'm going to pray for us. I forgot that we have a lot of kids back there that need to be picked up and very faithful babysitters. So um, let me pray for us and then we can go get your kids and I'm happy to continue to talk.